0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic
1: indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. Welcome to the David McWilliams podcast, the podcast that every week tries to make economics comprehensible, a little bit less technical, and ultimately much more relevant. And this week, we're going to be talking about Brexit, Boris Johnson, what happens to Britain over the near term, and looking out over the longer term, and how that will impact on all of us. Before we begin, I want to just mention that this episode is brought to you thanks to our Patreon supporters. And to help support the content, and perhaps more importantly, to unlock exclusive comment and scenes and footage and episodes, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. As always, I'm joined by uh, my old mate John Davis in Dublin. John, what's the crack? Very
2: good, Mike. How are things over there in Croatia? I can hear all the crickets behind you.
1: It is hot. It is hot and extremely pleasant, if the truth be known, (laughs) to wake up every morning. You're working on your tan there, Mac, are you? I'm working Oh yeah, yeah, the legendary red-haired tan, the deep bronze that I go. But it is, I tell you, it is, I I don't want to sound like I'm laying it on thick, but, you know, there's an amazing thing about waking up every morning to blue skies. It actually puts you in an amazing mood, it puts you in a much better... Yeah, I'm it, sure, it does it's some
2: how, sure there's a whole psychology behind that, I'm sure.
1: But speaking of waking up to blue skies, we have a man who's living in the basement in Chicago with us. Finn Midlachlan is in Chicago. By the way, Finn has just secured himself a fantastic position at the University of Chicago, which is no slouchy place when it comes to economics with Josh Gottlieb on health economics. So well done, Flynn. How's Chicago?
3: Cheers, lads. Uh, yeah, no, all good. All good. I'm stewing here in an apartment with uh, no AC and boxes of Amazon stuff for furniture. So, <laughs> yeah, it's grand, you know, settling in. It's called
1: progress, Finn.
2: Yeah,
3: you've, uh, yeah, you've yeah. hit the big
1: time. You've hit the- <laughs> Jeez, that American <laughs> place is great.
3: Just, it's just like Ikea, you know, flat pack, like, you know, build it yourself.
1: <laughs> but listen, what's it like? What's it, what's it like over there? Are you enjoying it?
3: I'm only about a week or two deep now, so still getting used to it. What's, but, the, what's uh, the main yeah. thrust
1: of
2: the gig there?
3: Oh, God! work uh, no, I'm working on a few projects, so mainly on health insurance markets in the u s uh, and the complexity associated with the billing process over here, so the way people are paid and how that builds into overall premiums and stuff. just, um, just tell yeah me no, then, it's
1: interesting. Just just tell me I mean, how much do the Americans spend of their GDP on health every year?
3: Oh, a ton I don't have the figure to hand either, but uh. I had to sign. I had to sign up for my own plan there now, f- so I could stay on my visa. And it's expensive enough. It's a like couple hundred quid a month, wow. and that's me, young twenty-something, the best health. So, yeah. yeah, you wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to have any pre-existing conditions with the way things are going with Trump yeah. and yeah. the repeals and whatever else.
1: Yeah, Davis, there wouldn't you. You wouldn't have. You wouldn't hoped in hell, Davis is getting insured.
2: not a hoe. no no i'm wheezing away here as we go i hope i get to the end of the podcast
1: (laughs) all right let's let's kick off go go for it so
2: we're in the silly season as this time of year is often known as in in the media but it actually feels like we've been in a silly season for months now if not years with this whole brexit thing so like most people i've been trying to stay abreast of it all and trying to decipher what the likes of Johnson and Co are actually saying. you know, What do they actually mean when they talk about the economy? What kind of impact it's going to have in the UK, in Ireland, in the EU and beyond? But actually, what I, what I really want you to explain to me here is where did this whole thing come from? Like, I know they've always been a bit Eurosceptic and see themselves as somewhat different or separate to Europe. But where did this whole
1: anti-EU thing really kick off? Well, John, that's a... Really, I think what we're going to do this podcast, we're going to try and look at the history of it, then the psychology of it, which I think is very important because the psychology of the Brexiteers is important because it will explain why they might do something illogical, which is the sort of kamikaze approach of no deal, when all logic would suggest that you have to run a mile from that and do a deal. And then the third bit, we'll do the economics. So We'll do the history, the psychology, and then we'll do the the hard economics, what's going to mean for us, okay? okay and for but the world. The it. history is fascinating because on the 20th of September 1988, in a small Belgium town called Bruges, which is in West Flanders, I was in college there doing a postgrad, doing a master's in economics, and our inauguration speech was given by Mrs. Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. And at the time, the great Margaret, Margaret Thatcher had been the <laughs> She had been, what I would say, a pragmatic Eurosceptic. And by that, I meant the Brits were signed up to the single market. They were really into the trade aspect of things. They were slightly dragging their feet on other areas, which, which the French called a social Europe. But they were yeah. in the business, right? But Thatcher came in in 1988, and she made this speech, and I was there. It was extraordinary. We were nine Irish students, and in about a student body, of about 400. And she came in. And she gave this speech, and at the time I was thinking, this is quite interesting, but my visceral hatred of her and dislike for her, (laughs) okay, was so evident that it really went over my head. But that was called the Bruges speech. And this was the beginning of Brexit. Because in this speech, she outlined a path for the Tories that would have gone from what I would call pragmatic Euroscepticism, which is just an English thing, to what I would call conviction Euroscepticism, that you were a conviction politician and being Eurosceptic was part of your armoury. And I remember sitting listening to her and not really being aware at the time that this was so significant. It was the speech she said. Indeed, it is ironic that just when those countries such as the Soviet Union, which have tried
2: to run everything from the centre, are learning that success depends on dispersing power and decisions away from the centre, there are some in the community who seem to want to move in the opposite direction. We have not successfully rolled back the frontiers of the state in Britain, only to see them reimposed at a European level, with the European superstate exercising a new dominance from Brussels.
1: So that's when she said, no more dilution right. of sovereignty. We are now going to be an independent country. And you just, to give you a context, Jack Lore was the head of the European Commission at the time. And yeah. he was a French politician, an incredible integrationist. And his idea was that we could accelerate the process of European integration. Thatcher said no. So the Bruges speech, which I was at, was the beginning of a process. Now, the interesting thing also is that around that time, all the key figures in Brexit now, so Johnson, Gove, Hannan, rees Moggs, all those guys were undergraduates in Oxford. And they were all members of the Oxford Union, which is a debating society. And Simon Cooper, the very excellent journalist in the Financial Times, wrote a piece yeah. about them about three weeks ago. It's very interesting. And what Cooper was saying is he was also in Oxford, but Cooper was he an outsider. that gang. No, no, no. So Cooper was a South African, educated in Holland, went from Dutch comprehensive school to Oxford, so he was completely outside the Eton gang. He was also a different class, he was middle class, they were all upper class, but like a lot of very good journalists, he spent his time watching and almost taking mental notes about them. And what Mm. he said was that in 88, they were all in this union, and what got you to the top of the Oxford Union was loquaciousness and bluster and taking everything as a joke, and regarding yourself really as, you know, educated in the classics and Greek mythology and all that sort of stuff, but that basically it was bluster and unbelievable confidence and a very tangential relationship with the truth, Okay, The truth was insignificant as long as you could actually debate extremely well and deploy words and use the English language in a very, very florid way. Right. And his point in this article, which I thought was really interesting and quite incisive, was those very characteristics are exactly the sort of characteristics that Boris Johnson embodies. He's quick-witted, he's funny, he's humorous, his relationship with the truth is very, very consequential or inconsequential, but all those sort of extraordinary ability to take, you know, references from Greek mythology, etc., those type of bluster is exactly what has driven Brexit. And those kids who were playing at being politicians in 1988, are now, 30 years later, running the United Kingdom. They are the cabinet, and they are the people who are driving Brexit, and also they're the hard Brexiteers. They're the ERG, the Reese moggs group. And what yeah. they basically have is an ability to bluster and talk, but they've no ability at detail, which is why they're getting tripped up, because the whole Brexit process has been this great adventure as Boris Johnson calls it, you know, this sort of neo-Elizabethan, that's the first Elizabeth adventure, sort of swashbuckling, cavalier, going back to the empire, all that stuff. Whereas the world has moved on, but they don't seem to get that. And when somebody comes up with the detail and says, well, actually the backstop is this, or actually the trade is that, or actually look at the detail where the devil is hiding, they tend to get very irritated because like detail, you know, it's something for engineers and, you know, posh people don't need to do with detail, right? And I was thinking well, of that. Where that became uh,
2: particularly evident was yep. any time any of them were asked about what they were going to do about the Irish border, they always pointed to some elusive technological solution that apparently doesn't really exist yet. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it was like a catchphrase almost. That was again, as you say, it was
1: more bluster. It's all bluster. And now I was thinking of that because a couple of weeks ago I was at my thirty-year reunion. For that college in Bruges. And if Brexit started at the Oxford Union in 1988, the anti-Brexit, the European side, started at the College of Europe also in 1988 and 1989. And the really interesting thing is that all the people who were in that college with me... So the College of Europe is a sort of a technocratic postgrad, which educates people who do economics or law all around the European Union to do this master's in order to work in the European Union. So they work in the Commission, they work at the ECB, they work at the European Parliament. And the interesting thing is, in the same way as 30 years later, the people who were playing politics in Oxford are now running the UK. 30 years later, the people who were in college with me are now very, very senior in the European institutions. But there's one crucial difference, and this is why I think no deal is very, very possible. The Europeans that I studied with, who are now very senior, are technocrats. They are into detail. They don't make mistakes in negotiations. They are not particularly flamboyant people. They're not the best of crack to go out with. But what (laughs) they are is they are the sort of non-commissioned officer class of the European Union. And they are the people setting policy. So when, for example, the Brexiteers thought that what they would do was that Britain would negotiate with Germany over the heads of the rest of Europe. Remember, that was the British thing. Well, the Germans just want to sell cars to us and we'll do a deal with them. They didn't figure out that the Europeans would do the opposite. They'd make the European Commission negotiate for Europe. So one voice under Barnier. And all the people advising Barnier were the people who were in college with me 30 years ago. And a couple of weeks ago, we had this reunion and I sat and chatted to them. And it was just fascinating Their view was, look, Brexit has happened as far as we're concerned. We have absolutely no interest in giving the British anything because ultimately what the Brexiteers want to do is undermine the European Union and they want to begin the process of loosening the European Union and they're hoping that somebody else after Brexit will leave. So when you sit and talk, I mean, Sabine Wayman, who's the senior negotiator, was in the College of Europe. All these people, she's the... Barnier's right-hand woman, right? Yeah. They all say... She was in college no- with you. She was in the college a couple of years after me, right? Right. But she's from that... She's from this yeah, uh, yeah. This this school, right? And she's from the the well. So the people in the College of Europe and the people of the commission, in the same way as the Brexiteers were informed by Mrs Thatcher in 1988 and delusions of empire and the conservative machine under Thatcher and... Jeffrey Howe and all those people in the 80s. The College of Europe kids are also products of their history. But what really formed their view was the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. That's the big event that formed their worldview. And yeah. consequently, Europe, the sense of Europe, the political capital invested in the project is overwhelmingly theirs to try and bolster so what you have, John, is these two almost different types of people. You have the upper-class English tufts in their red corduroy trousers, okay? Or their mustard trousers. You've got those <laughs> yeah. who are all <laughs> bluster. Okay? It's like a uniform. Uh, exactly. And you have these slightly technocratic people. And when the irresistible force of the upper-class overconfident tufts smashes into this unmovable object of the technocrats who are being driven by treaties and really detail, something that has to give. And it's very, very easy for me to see how we could limp into a no-deal scenario, even though the no-deal scenario is a kamikaze move for the Brits. And just one final thing on Johnson. Uh, In a couple of months after I graduated from that college, I took a job with a small European publication called the European Report, which was basically a journalistic job reporting on what the European Union was saying. So every day you had to go down, think of the Port Parole, which happened at midday every day, which the EU Commission spokesperson came out and in French and English said, this is what the Commission's doing today, right? And Johnson was also there. And I always remember him like he was a really standout figure. You know, just the state of him, number one, right? The head in him, right? (laughs) But he was clever and he asked clever questions. And the interesting thing is also, this was the beginning of Johnson's conversion to becoming the key Brexiteers. Because think about it, Johnson was born, or lived, sorry, in Brussels. His dad was a World Bank official. His grandparents are cosmopolitan. One's American, one's Turkish. He's not a little Englander by his blood. This is a fabrication. And what he did, Johnson realised that he could make a fool of the European Commission via his column in the Telegraph, This is the one about the straight bananas and all this sort of thing. And constantly he was feeding this almost like his own little game of how to actually big up Boris. And Boris became the favourite Eurosceptic of the Telegraph at a time when Mrs Thatcher was going full Jihadi Eurosceptic in politics. And there's a link to 1988 and all these things. And then you see Johnson, all through his career, has made huge political capital of a sort of a game. And the game has been almost like a caricature Eurosceptic, where deep down, Johnson, I don't think, is one. And that's why we all know that... Yeah, we we know that Johnson had two articles ready to go when he was going to be... a. Was he going to go for Remain or Leave? He had two articles in The Telegraph. One was going to be overwhelmingly pro-European. The other one was going to be overwhelmingly anti-European. And he vouched to go for the anti-European one. So up until the last minute, he was never really a Brexiteer. He was yeah. much more, when he was, when Johnson was the mayor of London, he was cosmopolitan, he was into immigration, he was into but, capital uh, flows. He was actually a good he mayor was,
2: of London. I mean, I was he, living in he was London at the time.
1: Yeah. He was a liberal.
2: Right, so so tell me this then, if you're saying that he was such a smart guy. He's yeah, clever. And he, he had such insight. Is all this bluster then just front? And is he just playing to his base, as it were, to use a kind of a Trumpian comparison? Well,
1: it's basically Boris Johnson's base is Boris Johnson. That <laughs> right. okay. it's, he's this huge ambition to be Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Don't forget, this is a guy who penned a biography of Churchill. He sees himself as a Churchillian figure, a great right. man in history. And that will basically dominate how he plays the next couple of months, his sense of himself. But Brexit was the one thing that gave Johnson a chance. And this is when I come back to the the kids in college, right? Cameron was also in Oxford with Johnson. And Johnson could never really figure out how David Cameron, a much less flamboyant person, and I'd say in Johnson's head, a much less able person, became Prime Minister, while Johnson was only the lowly mayor of London. So Johnson could see that Brexit was his chance if he could force the agenda. And again, Johnson said to Cameron... I don't think we're going to win this, but it was going to be that if they lost the referendum and Johnson was the leader, it would be a heroic defeat and that would position him maybe to be chancellor and position him to take over from Cameron in the event of what would have been Cameron's swan song. But because Cameron lost the uh, election, Cameron had to go. So what you're seeing is schoolboy animosity playing out in the most important thing, which is the future of a country. So I think that's the history. History comes from the schoolboys in Eton, the bigger schoolboys in Oxford, Mrs. Thatcher in Bruges, changing the conviction of British politicians on the right, building Euroscepticism, and it all ends up with the Brexit referendum, which again, Cameron called to put Johnson in his box. Think about it. Cameron called that to say to Johnson and the Brexit party who were at the time UKIP, look put up or shut up, we'll have a referendum, I'll sort this out for once and for all, and it backfired on them. So that's the mess they're in. That's the historical place where the UK have come from in the last 30 years. Okay, so that's
2: the whole history, that's the whole background side of things. But what I've been noticing recently, and in all the debates, a lot of the focus has been on the personality, and a lot of the economic arguments have been getting lost could you talk us through those? Uh, actually, maybe Finn, you could give us a view on things.
3: Yeah, you're, you're, you're dead right in that. Like, As David said earlier, these people aren't interested in detail. But that's not what they're... They see that as someone else's job. But, but even just so, the main headline figures of Brexit obviously come down to trade. And if you want, the figures on UK trade with the EU. So the EU is the UK's largest trading partner uh, in 2018. So UK exports to EU were $289 billion. Which is 46% of all of the UK's exports. Right. Uh, UK imports from the EU were 345 billion, so 54% of all UK imports. So throwing all that together, you know, the UK had an overall trade deficit of minus 64 billion with the EU last year in 2018. And obviously, when you look into the breakdown of that, they have a surplus of 29 billion uh, when it comes to things like services. So that's all driven by the financial sector, the legal sector, consulting. And that was outweighed by a deficit then of minus 93 billion in trade and goods. So that's, that's, their, that's their dealings with the EU. Now, outside the EU, the UK has a trade surplus of 44 billion with non-EU countries. Right. Again, breaking that down, that's 83 billion of trade and services. And that outweighs a deficit of uh, minus 39 billion in goods. So essentially, the EU is the largest market for the UK, which flies in the face of the whole underpinning economic arguments of Brexit. So they they need a deal in some way or other. Well, yeah, here's the thing. And as Johnson will probably go on to say now in the next couple.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig.
3: pioneer and strike trade deals with the rest of the world and we'll expand our ties with the anglophone countries and the commonwealth and whatever else which is to be honest, it's all bluster because if you look at the dynamics of it trade deals are primarily based on the size of the market that you command and the size of the market that you're granting access to and in simple terms the uk is a much smaller market than let's say the US is one of the people they're lying up at the moment. Sure.
1: And I mean, John, I think what's interesting is that one of the Brexit slogans is that the UK is a great trading nation. Yeah. Great trading nations tend to have trade surpluses, which is why they're great. The UK hasn't had a trade surplus for 20 years, OK? It's actually a proxy trading nation, right? It actually <laughs> ends up importing most essential stuff. And I'll give you a quick statistic, right? And I know Ireland. Figures are changed by multinationals, but that is our economic model. The UK exports 12,000 euros per employee per year. Ireland exports 61,000 euros per employee per year. So Ireland is actually the great trading nation. My point is the structure of the UK, I think they're too far behind. Like if you look at in manufacturing, right? The French and the Germans are miles, miles, miles ahead of them. And you don't become a good manufacturing nation overnight because you change your trade. You become yeah. a good manufacturing nation because for years and years and years, your companies have invested in brilliant technology. And that's been fed by an education system that produces engineers and scientists. So it's an overall holistic end game. Trade is. Trade is the ultimate expression of lots and other parts of the economy and the UK abandoned that years ago Okay, when they destroyed their own manufacturing base, when they destroyed their own industrial base and decided to become this sort of high-tech, low-tech is actually the case, service economy, because services tend to be low-tech, right? So I think the other thing is that the single biggest factor in trade is geography. You trade with people you live beside. That's always been the case. And consequently, this idea that the Brits will trade more with Asia than they will with Belgium or Holland or Ireland or Netherlands is totally against all sensible common sense economics when it comes to trade.
2: Okay, okay. But this doesn't really add up, Mac. I mean, why would they risk their economy in the short term? And and the future of the country in the long term, I'm not sure if I get it. What's going on in their heads? What's the, what's the thinking behind that?
1: I, I think this is a really fascinating area, and I call this the psychology of the Brexiteers. Okay, and I've said that, and you and I have lived in London. We've worked with people like this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've listened. I call them kind of golf club revolutionaries. You know that they're <laughs> in the home counties with this fictitious notion. With their
2: red pants and their tweed
1: jackets, exactly. With the red pants and the tweed jackets, and their imported German cars, ironically, (laughs) right? And uh, what I've always there's a very strange thing going on, right? It's this weird combination of self pity on the one hand, that they are the victims of some great orchestrated European agenda to dominate them. So self pity, but John, accompanied with overconfidence, and this is a really frightening cocktail for anyone to have. So you're a victim on the one hand, but yeah. you're overconfident on the other hand. Okay? Yeah. It's, it's like really, the oxymoron, that. Exactly, exactly. And it's, it's like it's a, it always reminds me of when the English soccer team, you know, when the English soccer team, who are always <laughs> big themselves up before the World Cup, we're going to win, we're going to win, we're going to win, we're going to win, and then they get yeah. beaten by Honduras or
2: something. The spirit trying, right? of 66.
1: Yeah, all that nonsense, right? But if you think about it, if, if England are about 1-0 down at halftime, they go to Garth Crooks or whoever the fella is in the studio, right? And they always... It's always somebody else's fault that they're yeah. one nil down. Yeah. It's like a bad referee or a dodgy decision. But they always seem to claim that they have the wherewithal, the overconfidence to come back in the second half, right? So what I see in Brexit is something deeply psychological. And there's something in, there's a cognitive bias that we have, and it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it's very evident, actually, in males, in all of us. And it's this inability to see your own inadequacy. So you overemphasize your own role when things go well. You right. say you're brilliant. And you underemphasize your own role when things go badly, if you're incompetent and you blame somebody else. Yeah. And I, I've always noticed that it's, it, a lot of men have it, as opposed to women. I see it with my, my own kids if they do an exam, for example. right? right. Uh, the young fellow will come in and say, how are you going to do this? Oh, man, I ace that. And he walks off and he gets a D, for example. Whereas my daughter, on the other hand, will come in. and say, "How'd you do, Lucy?" And she goes, "Oh my God, I just think I'm barely passed, right?" And she goes, yeah. fine. So it's this inability to, and it's it's a very, very deep psychological cognitive bias that all of us have. But I I think it's it's Darwin said something really interesting. Charles Darwin. Yeah. The quote is, "Ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge." Beautiful quote. So basically, what happens is. The more ignorant you are of a situation, and the Brexiteers are very ignorant of Europe and Ireland, whatever, rather than creating self-doubt, as our friend Darwin, who was a pretty clever fellow, said, it sometimes creates overconfidence, right? And it's it's back to the bluster. It's the idea of a little piece of knowledge being a very dangerous thing, right?
2: Yeah, it's filling in the gaps with notions.
1: Exactly. And I think the Brits, the Brexiteers, have been caught in this weird psychological drama with themselves where they can be victims and conquerors at the same time. They can be put upon and yet they believe that once they break the shackles of the oppressor, they will turn themselves into a fantastic trading nation again like they did in the empire. The only reason they were a trading neighbour in the empire is they kicked the shit out of everyone, right? And if you kick the shit out of everybody, you trade on your own terms, which is why they destroyed the British, the Indian cotton industry, totally destroyed it. Amazingly, the Maritime Act banned any ships coming from the Caribbean from docking in Ireland. They all had to dock in Bristol and in Liverpool. So, really? they, oh, yeah, there are all sorts of weird things they did to massage trade to the benefit of England. So they're thinking they can go back to that. But those days are over.
2: So, sorry, tell me again, what was the name of that psychological effect? So, it's
1: called the Dunning Kruger effect. Okay. Dunning Kruger -Kruger Kruger effect. effect is a cognitive bias whereby one is we overestimate our own abilities, two, we don't recognize talent in others, and three, we fail to recognize our own inadequacies and blame our own inadequacies in someone else. And this is deep in our own psychology. And I believe that's the sort of thing that children display. And as you get older, you begin to become more self-aware. But the Brexiteers seem to me to have gone the opposite. As they get older, they become less self-aware and more childlike. And ultimately, then, they tend to cod themselves about their own competencies, their own abilities. And this is dangerous because... This all suggests to me that they will throw, or they could throw, their toys out of the pram and go for no deal. It's more psychological than economic.
2: I know somebody else with the Dunning-Kruger effect. A friend over there in the States with a funny head.
1: <laughs> well, the funniest thing is the Dunning-Kruger is a study done by two professors. And you're right, it's about narcissism, but the most important thing is it's about how incompetent people don't see their own incompetences, right? And it comes from a bizarre study, John, done by these two professors, Dunning and Kruger. And the case study they had was a notoriously pathetic American bank robber who used to spray lemon juice on his face because he (laughs) believes that the lemon juice would make him invisible. Okay? (laughs) Okay. I digest you not, and I think Finn isn't there a, another isn't there the opposite of that as well
3: yeah so the 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 inverse of that so to speak, is the imposter syndrome where you have people that have risen to the upper echelons or the top level of expertise who will often feel unaccomplished enough or unable to speak on a certain topic because essentially they know so much that they know what they don't know
1: right right so and this is why they this is why a lot of uh, academics I think uh, rarely. It's funny, you know, when we're, we're doing something just on that on Kilconomics, you know, Kilconomics is all about kind of a, someone is a jack-of-all-trades. They come in, they're able to talk about this, that, and the other. And a lot of academics simply will not sit on a discussion about something that they are not the absolute expert in. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which is, which is, so there you have it, John. And you're right about uh Trump, John. He has the Dunning-Kruger effect squared, that man. Okay? <laughs> Cubed. (laughs) Cubed,
2: exactly. (laughs) Yeah, and and not only that, but since the UK are now setting themselves up for trade deals with the US, how's that going to play out? And and where do we go from here economically?
1: Well, I think where we go economically will depend on what Johnson chooses to do politically. So, Finn, you have got some of the polling data, haven't you, about what the likely next political moves are in the UK? And then we'll come back and see the economics.
3: Yeah, sure thing. So... I mean, it's hard when you're watching these interviews with them or you're watching them give a speech, not to just sit there and be like, this guy's a fucking clown, like. Mm-hmm. But he's actually he's actually extremely popular. So I was looking at some YouGov, which is a major polling company, some of their data, which suggests that 31% of the public have a positive opinion of him. Of Johnson, uh, whereas, this is. Of Boris Johnson. Of Johnson, yes. Whereas 47% hold a negative opinion. Now, that doesn't sound great. More people hold a negative opinion than a positive one. But you have to put that in to the context of people hate politicians. So let's just compare those favorability ratings with some other politicians in the UK that have, whatever, near universal name recognition. So outgoing Prime Minister Theresa May. So she's the second most popular Conservative behind Johnson. And she's seen positively by 27% of the people with a 49% negative rating. Um, And equally on the other hand, uh, Jeremy Corbyn who, for the many or whatever, is the most popular Labour politician, but actually faces even worse numbers. So he's got 26% Twenty-six percent of people holding a positive view versus fifty-four percent holding a negative view of him. That actually doesn't surprise um, me at all. No, no, and he's, I suppose he's, he's, he's quite divisive. Yeah, but if you bear those bear those numbers in mind and think about think about what Johnson's going to do for the Conservative Party, so YouGov have also done some polling data exploring two scenarios of what's going to happen next. So they asked people first if a general election were held with Boris Johnson as Conservative leader before Brexit has been delivered, basically you see no change in the numbers. So it's 23% for the Conservatives, Lib Dems on 23%, Brexit Party on 21% and Labour on 17%. So no real change in the short run. Mm. Now, in the second scenario, if you ask them if a general election were held with Boris Johnson as Conservative leader after Brexit has been delivered, now they don't specify what kind of Brexit this is, But essentially, you see a decent bounce in support for the Tories. So they jump up to 28%, giving them an 8 percentage point lead over the Lib Dems. Uh, They're on 28%, which is double the Brexit party on 14. And Labour is down at 17%. So essentially, there's no massive change in the near term of Boris Johnson becoming the Prime Minister. And things are essentially unsettled until Brexit actually happens. But obviously, there's a lot of speculation in terms of what specifically Brexit means. But you do see this more long-run support for Boris Johnson as the leader of the Conservatives and the person to take down Jeremy Corbyn.
1: So I think this is really fascinating because this will be what determines Johnson's next moves in the next few months. The first thing that Johnson has to do, and you notice it there in the second poll, Finn, is if they deliver Brexit, they destroy the Brexit party. So that's the first thing. Yep. They, and, and And so Johnson has two enemies in mind. The first one is Nigel Farage, because Nigel Farage is eating his Brexit lunch, so to speak. So he has to deliver on Brexit to destroy the Brexit party, because once Brexit is delivered on, the Brexit party ceased to exist. That's the first thing. The second thing is the Conservatives have a much better chance of beating Labour if it's Johnson versus Corbyn than if it's Jeremy Hunter, any other leader, versus Corbyn. And so obviously the Johnson plan is to deliver Brexit on the 31st on Halloween night, okay, again, irony of ironies, okay, deliver it on Halloween night for the Brits, then call a quick general election, then take the political capital, and then become this Churchillian character that he sees himself of the great unifier. This is what they want to do. But of course, John, the problem is if they deliver on Brexit, the yeah. closer it is to no deal, the closer they are to walking away from the table, the quicker the Scots will have an independence referendum to walk away from Britain, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's the, the paradox in the whole thing. And therefore, Johnson's strategy is all going to be how he pressurises Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney to do something on the backstop Because if he can get a deal on the backstop from the European Union, he can sell essentially Theresa May's deal. He can deliver Brexit. They'll they'll buy themselves two or three years to figure out the new trading arrangements because that's what the withdrawal agreement is all about. The withdrawal agreement is only how are we going to figure out the real detail? And as we said, he doesn't like detail. So he'll be very happy with that and leave this to somebody else. Then you have a British general election in maybe the early spring. Yeah. And Johnson destroys Corbyn and becomes the leader he always felt he was going to do, which was this great Churchillian leader who delivers them from the bondage of Europe and they're free to recreate the English narrative.
2: Well, that does beg the question of how can he apply more pressure to Varadkar and Coveney? Like,
1: what else can he do? Nothing. And this is where the bluster, remember I was talking about the irresistible force of the bluster smashing in to the unmovable object of the technocrats, that it really, the interesting thing is now, the future of the Conservative Party is in Leo Varadkar's hands. and that's an interesting place to go.
2: That is, yeah. Because sure. he's
1: much more powerful than Johnson is now, because only he can actually get Johnson out of a bind. And does he recognise that, do you think? I hope he does. But that's the real politique. That for the next three months, Leo Varadkar is more powerful for the Conservative Party than Boris Johnson.
3: And equally, the DUP have a role to play there as well, no doubt. And one thing I think that is worth saying is that well, the Irish government in general has done a pretty pretty flawless job of executing their Brexit negotiation plan. And from well, going back to Enda Kenny getting lobbying EU leaders to get a special clause made for Northern Ireland. But the one, the one, the one criticism you can have of their performance essentially is that they haven't just directly come out and say, "Yes, if there is a no deal Brexit, of course we will be compelled to put up a border infrastructure along the border with Northern Ireland," because that, that, and I feel like that's what Johnson's going to play on is that that uncertainty because the government, for obvious reasons, hasn't come out and said that.
1: Yeah, and they don't want to say it, and they want to they want to fudge sure. that issue. But I mean, if we. It, if we come back to it, that basically the future of British conservatism is in the hands of the son of an Indian immigrant from Castlenock. Now That's a strange place to be, when the future of the party of empire is in the hands of somebody who on both sides of his family was colonised by the United Kingdom, the very empire that they're trying to re constitute.
3: Neither of whom would have been big fans of Churchill. Neither of them would
1: have been big fans of <laughs> Churchill, exactly. And that's where we're going. Yeah, see what
2: you mean there. This does remind me of a previous conversation we had about Russia and good old Gorbachev and, and perestroika, where it was a good idea, but it was really badly executed. Is Johnson going to be the Gorbachev of the UK by applying the same logic or illogic in this case?
1: So, The thing that the Brits want to avoid at all costs, really, is the no deal. Like the thinking Brits, right? The the bureaucrats and and all that, right? But because of the psychology of I'm just going to walk away and take my things, right? They might go down that road. If the Brits go for no deal, they will go through chaos for two or three months. And the interesting thing is, because Finn's done the numbers, 47% of their... Exports go to the European Union. Over 50% of their imports come from the European Union. Can you imagine the chaos of having no trade arrangement with the European Union? That they have tariffs, that they have checks on the border, that they have queues. This will bring down... He's no fool, Johnson, either. This will bring down his government very, very quickly. Because what they're banking on is that the Brits will go back to this Blighty spirit of the Blitz, and the more privation they suffer, the more they will come around together. I don't see that happening. So, my sense is that Johnson will blink first on the backstop. We may well give them a time clause, which is enough for him to sell this to the Tories, and then they get. Not so much a no-deal Brexit, but they get a conditional Brexit and they keep going. And I think that's the most logical place. But one of the problems is, lads, logic has never been the dominant force in this negotiation since the very day the Brits decide to leave the European Union.
2: You know, I started talking about the silly season, Mac. But this, this ain't silly. This is bloody serious.
1: This is incredibly serious. It's incredibly worrying that, as Finn says, a man who plays the clown is the person who is conducting the orchestra in the UK now. But far, and I think, for example, if the Scots decide to go for another independence referendum, far from being the Churchillian unifying figure that Johnson hopes he will end up being, Johnson may very well end up being the last Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, before we let you go, I want to give you a sneak preview of some premium content which you can access via Patreon. Caroline Camp. People are talking about a new Cold War between China and America. Maybe 2019 is almost like one of those big moments in history, like 1945, when things totally change and relationships change. And we know what the West is thinking. But we don't know what Chinese people and particularly young Chinese people are thinking. So when you look out from Beijing, what are you seeing?
3: Well, in China, people are actually talking about American politics and politics in the Europe, especially right now Brexit.
1: So, does the average Chinese person know what's happening in Hong Kong?
3: Not really. And my journalist friends in Guangdong province, they went to the street and talked to people. They know nothing about it.
1: So what you're saying to me is that China can control the internet. If you enjoyed that, you can hear the full episode and much more by joining us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. See ya.